reminding us that you are no longer in the tomb but have risen again from the dead and now seated at a heaven, at heaven, in, in heaven at your throne. And we do thank you that we could gather even now, Lord. What a great privilege and freedom it is that we could gather as saints and even look to you into your word. Be with us and even with the pastors as they answer the questions from the congregation. And that, Lord, may this time be an edifying session and even good for our own heart and our own soul. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have... He just appeared out of nowhere. He just appeared out of nowhere. Um, so we have, we have a few questions here. We'll start off with um, a few questions outside of our current Sunday school, but we'll also take a look at Christians in the workplace, some questions on fear of man that we've uh, gone through, some apologetics and evangelism, and at the end, just pertaining to our church life here at Calvary Grace. So I'll just start off by reading this um, passage in Genesis chapter 6. It says here, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So the question is, could you unpack the phrase sons of God? And in addition, how does this historical detail fit into God's redemptive plan? Thank you to the person who sent that question in. I'm looking directly at him right now. Um, so Genesis 6 is probably one of the most difficult passages in the Old Testament to interpret. There's so many different interpretations. The sons of God, I'd say that there's two, two main views, maybe three main views, but two that I'll kind of outline here just very briefly. So the first would be when he talks about the sons of God, that the sons of God who then uh, saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they take them as their wives, these sons of God, some people would argue, are, um, are, are men from the line of Seth, who are then marrying these daughters of men who are from the line of Cain. And so you remember in the context of Genesis 4, 5, you've got these, these two kind of lines, right? The line of promise through the line of Seth, and then you've got the line of Cain, um, who, is, who killed Abel, killed his brother Abel. There's, there's a curse upon him. And so you see really the, the outworking of this, uh, the offspring of the woman through whom the promise is going to come, the offspring of the serpent through whom destruction curse, murder, all that kind of stuff is going to come. And so then the point would be here is that if this is the correct view, which I don't actually think it is, but if, if this is the view, then, um, then the, daughters of, or the, the sons of Seth are marrying the daughters of Cain, and there's a, a perversion here. There's, a, there's an intermarrying that ought not to be happening. right? There, for, if you want to import it into the New Testament, there's an unequally yoked uh, aspect that they're not covenantally aligned. So that's one. Uh, another argument, and this is maybe where I would lean, and I'll just kind of lay out a couple reasons why, would be that these sons of God are some kind of angelic being. Some kind of angelic being. And now this might be, I might be the only guy up here that believes this. These guys might be totally different. I'm willing to be corrected. But here's a couple reasons why I think that these, uh, these sons of God are angelic beings 
who left their realm in heaven and came down to earth, married and had children, and committed basically a perverted form of sexual um, activity with these daughters of men. So that the first reason would be that the sons of God is a term that's only used a few times in the Old Testament. And each time it refers to an angelic being. So in Job chapter 1, you remember Job, uh, at the beginning there's this, you get this vision of a divine council where Satan is there and then it talks about the sons of God who are there as well and they're basically communicating with God and Satan says, you know, have you seen, or God says to Satan, have you seen my servant Job, right? So you've got this divine council happening with the sons of God who very clearly in that context are identified as angels, okay, some kind of angelic being. Uh, another place where that's used is in Daniel chapter 4. After the three guys are chucked into the fiery furnace and uh, a fourth man appears and Nebuchadnezzar says, I, I see a person who's like a son of the gods. And it's, again, some kind of angelic being. There's, again, there's debate on that, whether that's a, a, an Old Testament appearance of Christ or, or what that is. But it's some kind of... Um, other earthly being, we can put it that way. And then if you flip over into the New Testament, which I think, um, so you've got the word sons of God is used only in a few places in the Old Testament, that, that exact phrase. You need to make a distinction there between um, Adam as a son of God or as Jesus Christ, the son of God. Um, we, are, we are sons of God by adoption through faith in Christ. But if you look over in Second Peter, Second Peter, 2 Peter says this, 2 Peter chapter 2, so yeah, verse 4, yeah, verse 4, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world to the, of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So what you see there is that you've got these, these two parallel Old Testament events. Okay? What happened, I would say, in Genesis 6 with the, the angels who sinned. I think that's the reference then in, in Genesis 6 of the sons of God who were sinning by taking these daughters of men to be their wives. They sinned. They were cast into hell. Noah was preserved. Noah and his family were preserved. Okay, and then there's a parallel, he says, in Sodom and Gomorrah, that city with all sorts of sexual perversity in Genesis 18, they are judged, right? And then Lot and his family are preserved. Okay, and the point is that God knows how to uh, rescue the godly from trials. Okay, so you've got these parallels, and I would just say is, so when Peter's talking about for these angels that were not spared when they sinned, well, who... What other event in the Old Testament would maybe be a reference to that? I think the closest reference there is that it's tied to this Noahic event 
about the flood and the judgment and, and all the perversity that was happening. And then finally, just in Jude, in, in the book of Jude, we've got a, another similar um, passage. If I can find it. Okay, so in verse 6, Jude, verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah, the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So again, very, basically the same outline that Peter had, right? You have the angels under judgment, Sodom and Gomorrah under judgment, these two uh, significant events, and both pertain to uh, perverse sexuality, right? They're both under judgment because of perverse sexuality, among many other things, but that really stands at the forefront. So what I'd say then, the question is, is, okay, what about the angels, or what about what Jesus says about the angels in Mark chapter 12, when he talks about the angels neither marry nor are given in marriage? Well, if you read that text closely, you see that he's talking there about the angels in heaven in their proper abode. In other words, angels, as they are properly designated to function, according to creation order, are not to engage in any kind of sexual activity. But I think that's precisely the point, is that you have here in Genesis 6, everything is coming undone. Right? God's intentions for humanity are completely being overturned. Not only in the earthly realm among the daughters of men, but even in the angelic realm, there's a complete perversion, a twisting, uh, a catastrophic undoing of God's good creation order. And therefore, the judgment comes as a result of that. Okay, so just a couple applications then in terms of redemptive history. What difference does this make? This can be kind of speculative. I don't think that this should be something that Christians divide over on their view of who the sons of God are. Because the main point in Genesis 6 is very clear. The main point is very clear. God looks, and what does he see? He sees wickedness. He sees that the hearts of men are only evil continually. Right? There is perversity. There is corruption. There is depravity everywhere. And every sphere of life, as it was then, today, is marked by corruption and depravity. Not only here, but in the unseen, invisible, even angelic realm. And so, um, in Genesis 3, you actually see this interesting pattern. You see, what Eve did is she, she saw the fruit, she saw that it looked good, and then she took it. That same phrase is used in Genesis 6, where these sons of God, they saw that the daughters of men were attractive, that they, they looked good, it's the same phrase in Hebrew, and then they took it. In other words, it's the same garden variety sin, that's happening over and over and over again in every realm. And so, uh, what I would say to take away from this is that first, there is a warning here against sexual perversity and against going against, or, and, and against contravening God's good design in creation. God's good design in creation. The angels left their proper abode and they came and committed all kinds of sexual perversity. And humans do that all the time. What God deems to be good, this order to be good, we take and we twist 
and we use for our own purposes, just like Adam and Eve in the garden, just like these people in Genesis 6. And so, uh, it's a warning against perversity, and, um, and so the, the solution then is to repent. It's a call to repentance and to take refuge in Christ. And so there's something then to learn from Noah and his family. Right? They take refuge in the ark. Well, we don't go to an ark. The Lord has provided something far better for us, Christ himself, that we take refuge in. So that's a little bit of maybe an outline of how you can work through it. As I said, I'm, I'm willing to be challenged on that. If you want more details on this and on the Nephilim and who they might be, you can look on, um, type in Honest Answers, Peter Gentry. Uh, Peter Gentry is a professor at Southern Seminary, and he's got a, a little video. It's about 10, 12 minutes long, and he'll go through and talk about the sons of God. He basically, I basically stole this from him because he's smart. and He knows Hebrew and Greek far better than I do. So, I thought you, did, I thought you must have stolen it from someone because it was such a good answer. <laughs> And that is why when you study the, this passage in, in seminary, you never preach on it. <laughs> but it does come up. But yeah, I, I would stand in the, in the same uh, interpretation as, as Josh for exactly the same reasons. Um, and, and I think the, the, the clinches there are Second Peter and Jude, uh, where they speak to that very issue itself. Um, so, yeah, I thought it was a great answer. It, it really reminds us then of... I mean, we, all the sexual perversity that's happening around us, it's these same kind of garden variety sins of, of a twisting of God's good design in creation. Okay, thanks, Pastor Josh. So our second question is in regards to spiritual forces of evil. Can you help us think through the practice of exorcism? Is it present today? Should we practice it? How should we um, think of it in terms of uh, what does the Bible say about exorcism? I got. I got. A, I. I told these guys I would. I would give them. I would. I would make a mess of things, and then they can clean it up. Basically, is what's going to happen. Um, so Ephesians six. If you if you look at Ephesians six, real briefly. Um, so for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So this is Ephesians six verse twelve but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And then he goes on and he talks about these different pieces of armor. So I think the first thing to say is that we, in our kind of Western, what I'd say is a materialistic, secularistic environment that ignores the supernatural to some, to some element, I mean, there's, of course, people that are interested in the supernatural, going on UFO hunts or whatever it might be. But generally speaking, many people function with a, an anti-supernatural worldview so that only what you can see, taste, feel, touch is what exists and what's real and what you concern yourself with. Well, the Christian biblical worldview is far more complex, even as we just saw, that there's an entire unseen realm, angelic beings, cosmic forces that we wrestle against. And that's a reminder that we do have real opposition, not just from people, but from spiritual forces that are unseen. And so we ought not to discount that. Uh, the devil himself, Peter talks about, is right now prowling around like a roaring, roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Okay, so 
just to put that out there, is there is the reality. Satan is real. Demons are real. Uh, and these are things that we need to be aware of, that we would not be deceived by them. Now, in terms of exorcism, so how do we then respond to this spiritual opposition that we're facing? Well, what I'd say is that, so Jesus' ministry was one, and, and I'd say the apostles as well, were marked by various wonders, signs, miracles, healings that were done, first and foremost, I'd say, because they were announcing the coming of a new age, the dawning of this new covenant age. And so these miracles were attesting to, first of all, Jesus' unique identity as the God-man, the Messiah. And in terms of the apostles, as, as the apostles being his unique uh, foundational men who were going to basically take what they had learned from Jesus and explain it in greater detail and lay this foundation for the church. Okay, so I do think we, we need to make a distinction between Jesus' ministry, the apostles' ministry, and our ministries today. There's paradigms and there's examples that we follow in Jesus and, and the apostles, but it's not just a one-for-one. One. We bring everything that they did over to what we do today. And you'll find many today in, in what's maybe known as, uh, sometimes called the ekbalistic mode of ministry. Ekbalo is just the word cast out uh, in Greek. And they would say, well, because Jesus did all these things, and Jesus even said in John chapter 12, you're going to do to his disciples, you're going to do greater works than me. Well, we should expect that we can raise the dead. We can cast out demons just like he did. We can heal with an immediate word on demand, like Jesus and his apostles. And I would just say, you have to make a distinction between um, this unique kind of foundational aspect of certainly Jesus as his unique identity and his work and the apostles. And, and so really what I'd say is, take a look and, and read through the epistles. Read through the letters of Paul and John and Peter. And what do you see as the emphasis there on a kind of ministry? Well, you see that it's, it's actually very ordinary. It's a very ordinary ministry, and it brings about extraordinary results, namely conversion of unbelievers. Um, and, and so it's very ordinary. It's also very ordered. There's an orderly, orderliness to it. You think of 1 Corinthians um, 14, let everything be done decently and in order. There's an order to how the church is, is arranged. Paul, Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy so that you may know how to conduct yourself in the household of faith. Uh, it's orderly. And then there's an organic kind of ministry of, of the word going forth, and it brings forth growth in relationships with one another. And so I just say is look at the, uh, the emphasis of what comes uh, after the apostles what Paul hands off to Timothy is not a kind of ministry of going and necessarily doing everything that Paul was doing, other than preaching the gospel, uh, teaching the word, emphasizing sound doctrine. So one passage that just, I think, helps make this clear is in 1 Timothy. There's, there's various passages, um, but in 1 Timothy, chapter 4, So, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Paul writes this to Timothy. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith, 
by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So first, he says that actually the, the demonic influence comes through false teachers. The demonic, it's going to come through these insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And what do they teach? Well, they forbid marriage in verse 3. They require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be received, uh, rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So, so what's his point here? Well, the way that you engage with these doctrines of demons and their influence in this day is that you watch out for false teachers. Uh, and, and Paul says to Timothy, you put these things before the brothers. You teach sound doctrine. You correct those who are teaching what's false and you put them. And in this case, he says, so you're going to tell people marriage is not forbidden. It's a good gift. And you can go eat a nice steak. Right? It's a very ordinary, um, ordinary way of doing ministry. And yet in doing that, you are undermining uh, the work of demons who are sneaking in through false teachers. So there's, there's many, different, uh, many different ways. I just say that in the New Testament, you don't ever see in the epistles an office of an exorcist. You'll, see, you'll hear some ministries talking about it as like, well, here, we're going to bring the exorcist into town, and he's going to cast these demons out of everybody. Well, you don't see an office of an exorcist. What you see is, is an emphasis on the re- responsibility of people for their own sin. Um, John talks very clearly in 1 John chapter 4 that those, how do you know that you're a child of the devil? When you practice lawlessness. When you engage in habitual, unrepentant sin, you are evidencing that you're a child of the devil, that you're enslaved in that sense. And it's Christ, it's the name of Christ and his person and his work that is going to set people free. And, um, and, and one of the, and I think in, in our context, well, in every context, demons and, and, and the devil himself in particular, being the accuser of the brethren, that is one of the chief ways that he is going to um, keep people deceived, depressed. He is going to, uh, he's going to accuse you. He's going to accuse you. And that is then when you need to come back to the gospel and you need to say, yes, I'm guilty on my own, but because of Christ, I am now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The debt has been paid. The enemy, Colossians 2, 4, 15, 14, 15, has been disarmed. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities. How? By nailing the debt of sin to the cross. So that the devil doesn't have any accusation against you as a believer now. There's no condemnation. He can't accuse you because you're secure in Christ. You're righteous in him. Um, so look at the New Testament. Look at its emphasis on a change of mode of ministry that alters from what I'd say is Jesus and the apostles to a more ordinary, organic, word-based ministry of proclamation of the gospel and then watching Christ save people and deliver them from the bondage they were once in.
Testing, testing. I'll just use this. Um, yeah, I was just going to mention off the back of that. So very much in line with what Pastor Josh has just shared. Again, Ephesians chapter 6, it's interesting to note that the, the armor of God passage comes right off the back of what in Ephesians? Well, the, the, these, these uh, commands uh, to the church to walk in love and then relationships of authority, right? So you've got, you've got submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the church at large. And you've got wives and husbands, children and parents, bond servants and masters. So just to diagnose then what, what the devil's activity looks like, very often, to Josh's point, it actually looks like messing up uh, the regular God-ordained um, patterns that God has uh, created in his world. So in other words, turning wives and husbands against each other, children against parents, you know, relational chaos in the workplace. That's the devil's activity. That's the devil's schemes. And, and it's, it's, so just noting that that's the context that Paul brings up this passage, the armor of God, to fight against the devil's schemes. Uh, yeah, all that, agree with all that. Just um, add that uh, at the end of the Gospel of Mark, you see uh, Jesus speaking to uh, his, the eleven, and then he, he says that um, uh, there will be signs uh, that will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. And then you see uh, the apostles going out and doing that. They, and it, it's, it's, it says it's to confirm the message. So there's a, in the, in the uh, early church, if you like, there's an apostolic uh, ministry accompanied by special signs in that epoch of uh, redemptive history that aren't then the norm today. Um, and so the norm today then is, as Pastor Josh was out outlining, you've got to understand the work of the devil. He's a schemer, and there, are, there is a devil, and there are demons, but you've got to know how he works and that he's created being, clearly, as well. And that, um, speaking of First Timothy, Second Timothy speaks to that uh, servant of the Lord who is able to teach correct opponents, and then it says that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's the real bondage that people are in. Um, and, 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 you know, when you, when you get folks pointing to the exorcist or that person that's got that gift of, of casting them out, the the devil's happy because you're pointing to a person. It is Jesus Christ who casts out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's then not to say that there may be some specific manifestations of evil uh, now and again in places you know, around the world uh, where there is some particular demonic activity uh, in a person, but it's, it's, it's just not the norm. Yeah, and I think... When you end up with these, uh, with a certain kind of ministry that emphasizes we need to be hunting around for the different demons and where they are, it effectively ends up being you're you're playing kind of a whack a demon game, right? Like you're you're looking around and always trying to whack a demon. And as Gavin was just saying, 
then your eyes are more focused on all these other things rather than Christ. And because the devil is a schemer, he often masquerades in very subtle ways. Um, I'd say all the sexual perversity around us right now, I wouldn't say the Bible would say it's, it's all demonic. It's very demonic. Uh, but what's the solution to that? Well, it is to go and to, to speak the truth, to correct our opponents with gentleness, that they may be granted repentance, leading to faith. There was a book a few years ago, I don't know if you remember, written by Frank Peretti, a couple of books, uh, This Present Darkness, I think it was called, and, and, it, and you know, it was this kind of uh, writing, you know, novel, and, and he was picturing these demons were appearing on people's shoulders, and it kind of fed that whole uh, view in, in, in the church a bit. Can I just mention something real quick as well? I, I mean, many, many of you guys are going to be aware of this, but even the, the passage that Pastor Gavin just brought up, just so we know, just to be clear about it, your Bible should say uh, that Mark 16, 9 to 20, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include, right? So just to be aware of that. That, that passage uh, is highly questionable, I would say, in the Gospel of Mark. So just, just to be aware of that too, I think that... Well, it's something that we ought to, ought to be aware of. It, it, if you want to talk about uh, textual variants and so on, go talk to DJ, DJ McLeod. <laughs> That's his test for elder candidacy. Okay. A, a question regarding uh, Christians in the workplace. Um, how do you assess if you're burnt out at work? You know, there, there's, there's seasons where there is intense amount of time that you have to invest in. But how do you assess if you're burnt out? And if you are burnt out, any counsel? So I, I would just say something to consider that you may not be thinking about. Depending on who asked the question, what your circumstance is in your work life, maybe you are just totally overworked. But I think something to consider, historically speaking, is we're living in an age of unprecedented leisure time. We're, we're living in, in an age of unprecedented leisure time, historically. And yet you hear about burnout all over the place. So why is that? Well, I would suggest that at least in part, we're also living in, in an unprecedented time of information overload and social media uh, binging. And so I, I think there's a connection there between those two things. How could there be? Well, with information overload, one of the things that technology and interconnectedness does to us is it, it can make us think that we're, we need to be omniscient and omnipresent and, and all the omnis that only God is, right? So now we're finding about, out about tragedies that are happening overseas instantly. And you have to have an opinion about it, and you have to know this and that and everything else. And, and we all claim to be experts about, you know, whatever the latest uh, news feed is. And we need, to, we need to become experts within two minutes, right? It, you know, so I, I'm just trying to make a connection between the age that we're living in. So it is unprecedented times as far as the information overload. But, but at the same time, there, we actually live in a time of great leisure. So, so what does that mean then pastorally? Well, I think 
if you're feeling burnt out, you need to take a look at the expectations that you may be placing on your own shoulders. Maybe your employer isn't even placing those on your shoulders. Maybe, maybe he or she is, or they are. But we're, we're, we can be really good at placing um, uh, just heavy expectations on our shoulders, and even our society placing heavy expectations on our shoulders that actually we're not, God has not asked us to do that. Um, so it's some, some to consider. I know you, you were only supposed to give one answer, but very quickly, something that might be helpful, another thing to throw at you is, um, is what burnout, what, what do you mean by burnout, right? And some people by, by burnout is, I just not, I'm not getting any satisfaction from my work anymore, you see, and they're not satisfied, and so they keep going in, and, they're not, and it burns them out. This, this phrase, job satisfaction, a phrase that wasn't really even heard of, couple of generations ago you would my, my grandparents wouldn't have even heard of that phrase job satisfaction the satisfaction from the job they got was that they had a job that that actually provided food for the table and paid their mortgage that was the satisfaction now if you can get a job that you love doing f fantastic and you you know you should seek to do that but for many people I would say most uh, you know the job it has a lot of grind about it because we're living in a fallen world and and so if we make that me and my, per this is the way we, we work now, me and my personal satisfaction, uh, uh, a, a big criteria, I will get burnt out. If I see it uh, in a biblical framework, is actually I have a job that God has given me that's putting food on the table for us and providing for us, I will get a satisfaction from it in a different way and I'll be able to persevere in a job that can be a, a grind sometimes. So it's just another thought to, to take into account. Thanks. Um, switching gears now to fear of man, apologetics, and evangelism. Um, this question to ask, if you're invited to an unbeliever's home, how do you approach saying a prayer before a meal? They said no. Should you pray quiet with your family, or how do you go about it? It depends, I think. I think it depends. It might be that you do say a, a prayer quietly. Uh, what if you're invited to the uh, home of, of devout Muslims? You're not going to stand up and say, sorry, I'm going to pray here, are you? If you're invited to their home, it's different if they're, they're invited to your home. Um, it, it, it depends on the relationship you might have with, with the person. We've got un unbelieving family members. Th uh, with my mother-in-law, uh, she's very happy for, uh, for me to say grace. Um, my parents are. If, you, if I went to my father-in-law's house, he would not want that at all, and so we would quietly say grace we're, we're in their house so they've invited you to their house it, dep it depends on uh, on the occasion uh, and the person as well that you're you know the relationship you've got with that person it takes wisdom in terms of interacting with let's say pr progressive christians roman catholics mormons and, and jw's how do you interact with them respond to them share the gospel with them if they do have legitimate questions of the christian faith and in terms of even just responding, um, this person asked, they don't want to end up in a debate, but rather they want to share Christ. So how do you do that um, wisely? Uh, I'll maybe tackle the, the second one that you just asked first. When, when you're trying to witness to someone, but it just ends up in debate. I once heard Paul Washer say that when he is finished talking to uh, man about God and he just feels like he's getting nowhere he's you know he's pulling his hair out as it were well he needs to go talk to God about man I think that's very helpful when you when, when you can't when you can no longer speak to man about God 
go to God about man. In other words, pray for the person that you're witnessing to. You know, they might be the hardest person in the world. You think they could never be saved, but the Lord can save them. The Lord can save him or her. So that's, that's a helpful thought to that one. I could just offer a bit of a response to the, the first question that you asked. Witnessing to progressive Christians, uh, JWs, Mormons, and so on. So this is where your, your systematic theology is going to come in. Very, it's going to be very important. It's, it's understanding the person and work of Christ. The person and work of Christ. So what, the, the question of the person of Christ is, un, is, is uh, um, answering the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And the second question, the work of Christ, what did Christ um, accomplish, right? His cross work his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. That's the work of Christ. And what is the significance of the work of Christ? So depending on who you're speaking to, so, so a Roman Catholic, for example, we're going to agree with a Roman Catholic on the person of Christ. In other words, historically, confessionally, they, the Catholics will maintain and confess that Jesus Christ is the eternal um, Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, eternally begotten, not made, and so on. And yet they are wrong on the work of Christ. What exactly did Christ accomplish at the cross, and how is salvation brought about? So that's an example of, as Protestants, we can agree with Roman Catholics on the person of Christ. We think that they're wrong on the work of Christ. When you look at... Um, a Jehovah's Witness, uh, Mormon, and so on, they get everything wrong, uh, to be honest, the person and work of Christ. However, the very sneaky, tricky thing about it is if you Google what do Mormons believe, probably your Google feed is going is to tell you, and I looked this up this morning, that Jesus Christ, we, we believe that he's the Son of God, that he died to make atonement for sinners, and so on. In other words, they use Christian lingo, they use Christianese. This is where your, our, our orthodox understanding of the person and work of Christ is, is fundamental uh, because um, they don't believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. And I'll, I'll just, so a couple uh, articles I just looked up this morning, I'll just make reference to um, if you want to dig in more. I found them on, uh, let me see here. So Justin Taylor on uh, TGC, the main TGC website, the Gospel Coalition, Justin Taylor, he's got uh, a little article on 10 beliefs, I believe about what Mormons believe, and then 11 beliefs about what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. That, that, that can be a good place to start, and then I believe there were resources uh, on there as well that you can link to. In terms of how you approach someone without getting into an argument, um, I think what all that Pastor Robert said is, is, is great in terms of person and work of Christ, but that heart attitude is that you need to have your, your, um, your warring passions within under control because what causes quarrels and fights amongst you is it not your passions within you that are way... So how are you going to get in an argument is if you're not under control with your desires and, and that ruling uh, desire at that moment is to be right... Yeah, then, and this is the text this morning, so. And so the, so the answer is our humility. 
will actually uh, be the balm that actually coats the words that you say to someone. Okay. Um, and the last two questions that we have, just pertaining to our life here at church here at Calvary Grace. The next question is for um, singles seeking marriage. Um, for singles in our church specifically, when it comes to navigating and seeking a potential spouse, what are some ways that you think that we should, the singles should be cautioning in terms of their thinking, their expectations? What are th some things that you're encouraged to see as it pertains to the singles in our church? Oh, well, I don't know why we... Maybe, my, maybe Michael should answer this question. Yeah, you should, you should know. <laughs> I'm, I'm asking for a friend, so... I thought we answered these questions last week. We, a few of the si singles came round to, to my house. Obviously, I didn't do a good job. Uh, so again, just a quick what did, what the question. Well, first of all, really encouraged with what the Lord has done here, uh, bringing so many new folks to, to our church and in that line, a lot of uh, single folks. So it's been a great blessing to us. I'm really encouraged with the... Uh, obviously the whole congregation, and then in particular the, uh, the singles, young adults here, is the hunger for the Word of God, your hunger for the Word of God, your desire to uh, ask questions and to know the Lord more. And so that's, that's, that's really good. Um, what was this, the part that they want to... Errors and thinking. Well, in terms of making uh, marriage an idol, that can be a... That's, your, that's, that's an error that I do see. Where, where you actually, that desire, the good desire uh, for marriage actually becomes a ruling desire over everything else. And then you make marriage and, I, and you're, you're seeking that ultimate satisfaction in being married. And if you're not married then, then you have this unmet desire and you go around very disappointed. And then you end up, you're not even praying about it in the right way. So I think that there's that, making marriage an idol is, is, can be a problem, especially when you're a little older. Um, and we've got folks that are getting married older now because of various cultural reasons. Um, and of course, time's going on. But being able to rest in the sovereignty of God, being able to seek his will, obedient to him for today, trusting him for the future, and praying fervently and consistently that he would make you the right person and bring you the right person. And secondly, um, don't... Don't be selfish. I think, you know, the, the longer that we can go on in, in a single uh, state, the longer you get used to living on your own and doing your own thing. And that can breed a certain kind of selfishness. So working on, a, uh, before the Lord, an unselfish heart. So because you're going to get married to someone, that is one thing you need to learn and continue to learn is to be unselfish. So uh, just a couple of pointers, but uh, overall very encouraging. And on the last point about selfishness, there can be a, a kind of perfectionism that you can have in what you're looking for. Obviously, you need to look for a spouse who's believing the gospel, so you're equally yoked. You've, you've got to work through matters of family, church, all that kind of stuff, so there needs to be agreement there. Um, it was Ryan Fullerton, when he was here on the panel here a few months ago, uh, he said, one of his elders, and I've, I've used this before, I heard that from him and I and he said yeah there's some guys out there that are they're a four and they're looking for a ten just just to be on like so you got to be realistic about the kind of spouse that that you should be looking for and 
in some cases, the Lord does miracles, and in, in my case, does a miracle, right? And remarkable. Remarkable, exactly. So, uh, but but you can be so you can be so perfectionistic, and saying, well, my future husband, he's got to be, he's got to have, you know, he's got to be the John MacArthur, John Piper. He's got to have his theology all in order, and and if there's anything in him, well, then you're. You might as well just remain single because you're not going to find a man like that or a woman. Or a I've got two bits of advice, one for the guys and one for the girls. I think the single men, you need to uh, grow in a, in a godly gravitas. And that is, the, the, as, a, as a single man grows as a man of God, uh, as he goes, grows as a man of prayer and the word, and he knows what his calling is as a biblical man, married or, or single, he will have a certain gravitas about him, uh, a gravity that could draw a, a woman towards him and could then be that spiritual leader for, for a woman. And for, and for the single ladies, uh, I think some of you probably have a Hollywood-style uh, view of, of what, marriages in terms of a romanticism, a little bit of sentimentalism, a little bit of what Pastor Josh was saying there. Oh, it's going to sweep me off my feet and it's all going to be heart beating and, and, and all of that. And, and that can be a problem. You want to have a biblical view of what marriage is and what a biblical man looks like. And then as you, as you have that and obviously grow as a biblical woman, uh, it, it is that that will then begin to really attract you uh, to to a man is those godly characteristics, and hey, he might be good looking or average looking or whatever. Uh, he might set your heart racing or not at first, but that long term will be the thing. Then there'll be a commitment to love, and then maybe a falling in love, if you know what I mean. So the Puritans, you commit to love a person, and then you might fall in love with them, rather than I'm looking to fall in love in some mystical way. Uh, and some kind of romanticized way. So just a couple of things for the guys and for the girls, I think, that I've seen emerge, uh, broadly speaking, and sometimes in this church. Super. And then last, last question, just checking on the elders in terms of how are you guys doing in, um, right now in terms of the season coming up, even with the Grace Cochrane transition and with all that, just checking in and how we could, as a congregation, how could we help uh, the elders? Pray. Um, there's lots of decisions that need to be made in, in the coming weeks and months. Um, but we trust that the Lord has, he's provided, I think, a, a stability here among us, an eagerness to grow. And so as long as these must-haves are happening, the word is being preached, people are gathering, the Lord's table is being gathered around, well then we can tweak and adjust the, the nice-to-haves as we need to. Um, there may be needs for more staffing in the future, and so be praying even for that uh, in, in the coming weeks and months. But I would just yeah, urge you to, to be praying that the Lord would, in these times of transition, there can be great disruptions to unity, right? And so you need to be praying, not just for us as elders, but for the unity of the church as a whole. It's been a tiring time f for the elders and uh, a difficult time because the Cochrane thing came at us a little bit quicker than we thought it might do with the timing of Jeff's departure. And therefore, then we had to get a schedule in place. We had to kind of pastor that congregation, get a schedule of preaching in place. Then, of course, with uh, Josh going and candidating, you know, we, obviously you all know Josh has been a great blessing to our church. Uh, Josh and Julie are greatly loved, so there's that kind of aspect of 
you know, he's going to be a, he'd be a great lead pastor in our view for them. But if he leaves, then there'll be a hole here. And yet, at the same time, we've we've got uh, DJ McLeod and, and Jared Harfield that the Lord has raised up clearly amongst us for years now, who are coming through hopefully to candidate and then become elders here. So we have uh, new elders coming on board. So the Lord is providing, uh, and even in certain what might be difficult and, and maybe some heartache, uh, we do see the, the expansion of the kingdom as well and, and growth. So I think we need to keep that bigger perspective in mind. It's about his kingdom and his kingdom expansion, and, that, and that's happening amongst us. And so be rejoicing as well in your prayers as well as, you know, praying for all the logistics that's going to happen. Well, thanks, guys. Uh, before I close in a word of prayer, um, please come, please enjoy, refresh yourself outside, and have a time of fellowship, and come back here in the sanctuary at 1045. So would you join me in a word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, so gracious and so kind even to us, we thank you for um, giving us, Lord, under shepherds to to guard and protect this flock, Calvary Grace. And may it be so, Lord, that we will be humbled to follow after their leadership and even knowing, Lord, that you are the chief shepherd of all. And we ask, Lord, as we come back here in the sanctuary, prepare our hearts, even tune our eyes to you, that we may have a grand vision of who you are, that you would meet with us and we would commune with you, ready to hear your word, being expectant that you would change our hearts and even, Lord, save those who are not yet in your kingdom. All this we ask in Jesus' name, amen.